0: The following speaker share from Mandy S. was recorded on August 19th, 2021. Thank you so much, everybody. It's an honor to be here, and I'm really excited and a little nervous, so bear with me. (laughs) So I'll just uh, start. My name is Mandy, and I'm an adult child. I'm also a very grateful member of Al Anon, CODA, and Emotions Anonymous. I've been in recovery for four years this October. So I'll just start with my story. Um, I grew up in a very small town in uh, southeastern Ontario. We grew up on a lake. Um, My paternal grandparents built a fishing uh, lodge with cabins and they rented them out to tourists and fishermen. It was 10 acres on a river, really beautiful place to grow up, kind of like having a camp in your backyard. My great uncle ran a shop and he fixed boat motors for the locals. Um, the summers were packed, busy working and playing. Um, my dad and his brother grew up and, there and they grew into running the lodge eventually, um, taking the full business of motor repair and boat storage and cabin rentals. And all the families, we all worked together, worked the business together. So I grew up doing laundry and cleaning cabins and serving food in the, the main lodge with my grandmother as the cook. My Dad and his brother are both alcoholics. Their parents never drank. I've never saw my grandparents drink I never heard of them drinking. They just they worked really hard at their business and uh, everything they earned they put back into the business throughout the years. So my dad, my dad was is my first alcoholic. He very loving and very nurturing. You know, he gave unconditional love to all to everyone around him. He always looked for the good in everybody. He worked very hard, long hours during the summer, and then in the winter he was home a lot because we didn't have a lot of customers in the winter. But he was always available. He was a people pleaser. so And he was a little bit of a hoarder. I mean, he was a caretaker. And he was I think he was love codependent. So he was very in love with my mother, and, and she was everything to him, and his kids were everything to him. So nothing he did was good enough for his dad, though his dad was very... Um, just strict and stringent. He had his firstborn that was his brother Brian. And then when Dad came along, Dad kinda got the leftovers, I guess. So but I grew up with the notion that it was very normal for most men to drink and to get drunk and to drive with a beer between their legs. And it was just that was acceptable and I didn't think anything different of it. In my family, the woman cooked and they, you know, chatted in the kitchen and the men just drank at the bar and carried on as such and nobody Nobody made it seem like it was wrong or anything was wrong with that. So my dad was the fun drunk. He was always very fun. He loved to look after the kids and, you know, just play games. And, you know, I don't remember anything bad about it at all. Same with my grandparents, my grandfather on my mom's side and my great grandfather. They would just be the life of the party, kind of like the clown, the mascot, I guess you'd call it, the character. And my dad, he's always been my best friend. He still is, you know. I do get annoyed by him sometimes when he drinks, but, you know, I can accept his behaviors better now and detach from them because of recovery. My mom and dad met at a party in high school. Uh, she was 15 and he was 19, so very young. Um, and they got married a year later. You know, I, I heard, I don't know how true it is, but I heard that my mom faked a pregnancy so she could quit high school, and move out of the house, because her dad was an alcoholic. Um, uh, two years after they got married, or after they met, I guess, I was born. So my mom was 18 when they had me. They partied a lot. You know, there were a lot of drugs and alcohol in the house. There was a lot of musicians. My dad played in a band with her two brothers. So there's always lots of people around, loud music and You know, I remember taking sips of beers when I was a kid. I didn't like it, but other kids my age were drinking as well. So it was just part of everyday life, it seemed. Um, The band would practice in the basement, and then they would gig out at local bars. And Eventually, three siblings followed in the next 12 years. There's 12 years between me, I'm the oldest, and my sister. So I have a brother and two sisters younger than me. I was left alone to watch them many nights, many weekends, so I had a sense of being overly responsible for them. Um, But the lodge was an amazing place to grow up. It's still very beautiful. You know, lots of new families would come in every week, so there'd be tons of kids to play with. A lot of families would come back generation after generation. Others would never return, so that was my first experience with abandonment so it was I remember I even now today I can remember this one girl I was so close to we spent a week together and we were crying when she was leaving and we were so young we didn't think to exchange addresses because we were just so little and when she left I tried looking for her address I tried writing her and and I never I don't even remember her name now but I just remember how much she meant to me at the time and how I'll never see her again because I don't remember her anymore but But my dad worked hard all summer and he really didn't spend a lot of time with us you know he'd miss dinners because people would come all hours of the night or day i need something for my cabin i need firewood i need my motor fixed. so that was a sore spot for my mom she i think she resented the business um my mom was the oldest and the only girl to her family she had three younger brothers my grandfather her father he immigrated from the West Indies. He came up, he came from a long family of drinkers. They all drink down there. It's just part of their lifestyle. He was an alcoholic and a workaholic. So my mom was untreated ACA and untreated Al-Anon. Um, she was very codependent and very unpredictable. Everybody loved her. Everybody fell in love with my mom the minute they met her, but they didn't have to live under her roof. So they saw a different side of her than we did. Um, I felt like I had to walk on eggshells around her. My dad was the alcoholic, but my mom was the rageaholic. She was, I guess she took on a lot of the para-alcoholic, um, tendencies. Um, nothing I did was good enough for her. She had very high expectations, which I assume she got that from her father. So I was always seeking approval, you know, and I learned all this coming into recovery. I didn't know what any of these emotions were or feelings or how I developed them and, I find that she was my root of my critical parent, because when I hear that critical parent in my head, it's my mom's voice. Uh, she was very strict, and she was very cold a lot in my life, even though she could also be very loving and a good person. She had she was very um, yin and yang, I guess I could call her, so I was always... Uh, I never thought of perfectionism until I came to recovery because I never, oh, you know, if it's not perfect, whatever. But from my mother, she she wanted perfectionism. She was a name-caller, and she could be very cruel with her words and her looks. You know, I never knew if she was going to hug me or slap me. So every day when I came home, I just kind of, okay, what's the mood? What's going on? And kind of get a feel for it. And I knew if dad was busy in his shop, I'd go and check on him first. And he'd kind of give me an idea of where she was at. So I could know whether to avoid her or overly please her when I got in the house and try and try and smooth things out. Um, Her love was conditional, whereas my dad's was unconditional. So it was very different. They were like oil and water, you know, fire and fire and ice you know they would be so loving together when it was good and just fight like cats and dogs and throw things at each other when it was not good so it was just a roller coaster of emotions and confusion she was not available emotionally for me so that was more abandonment Um, i was a very sensitive child and i cried a lot i just had a lot of emotions in me and When I came to her to talk to her and I was crying, she just pushed me away. I can't talk to you when you're crying. Just go away. So I would go to my dad because my dad would accept me no matter what and let me open up. And she became a rageaholic as my dad's drinking got worse. And which I became one in my marriage because I married an alcoholic. So a lot of fear. She was the pants in the family. She was a slave driver. She was strict. She cursed a lot. She was very judgmental. And uh, I took on a lot of those traits, and it took me years to to get away from those traits. Even before I came to recovery, so my dad's brother was an alcoholic. He was very undependable. He was harsh. He was critical. He's very ill, arrogant, a bully, um, aggressive, and violent. And their dad was a hard worker. You know, he worked in the mines in high school because his dad died early, so he quit school and he supported his mom and all his siblings. So he was a bit of a perfectionist. He had high expectations, and he gave everything to his firstborn, my uncle, and left nothing to my dad. My dad could never live up to those standards. He was never good enough. Their mom, my grandmother, Tenny, she was a very hard worker, caretaker, independent, and very loving. I don't know how she put up with that man for so long, but it worked for them. They ran a business together, and it worked for them. Whereas my mom's parents, her dad was an alcoholic and a workaholic. They moved around a lot. He, you know, he came up from the islands when he was 23 with a couple buddies and started a new life. And his wife, they met on a blind date and three weeks later they were married. So it's pretty crazy how that happened. But they stayed married their whole lives. They were, you know, and they, they did for each other. They loved each other. I found out later that he was—he uh, had other children with other women. I had no idea until, you know, after my mom passed. My mom's been gone 18 years now. Um, but he, she took care of him. She cooked and nurtured and obeyed. You know, spent a lot of his money. She was a people pleaser too, and I guess a little bit codependent as well. And uh, her dad was an alcoholic. So my great grandfather. Uh, that side of the family was very young, so I got to know my great-great-grandmother, and my great-grandparents were around most of my life. And my great-grandfather, said he was the clown. He was the drunk clown. He'd always make everybody laugh, and it was an uh, interesting, interesting family. <laughs> my mom and her three brothers all married their high school sweethearts. And, yeah, two the two brothers are still with their high school sweethearts, which is kind of interesting. One became a drinker as well, but not an alcoholic that I know of. So that's the root of my family. Uh, More dysfunction, I endured years of bullying from kindergarten to grade eight. Even a teacher bullied me. So fear of authority figures right there. My dad would have to come get me from school because I I couldn't stop crying enough to go back to class. I spent a lot of time in my room crying, feeling unworthy, feeling unloved. So I'm very highly sensitive to criticism, lonely. Didn't love myself. Still learning to love myself. I survived years of sexual assault and molestation from family members and boyfriends and other men throughout my life. My dad's cousin would babysit me since I was a baby, so I don't know what happened until I was old enough to talk and tell what happened. Um, We took him to court when I was about 12 uh, because he had broken into our house and stole some stuff, and he, uh, he started making phone calls to me. And asked me what color my underwear was and my dad freaked out so (laughs) that's when all that stopped and i think he went to juvenile a juvenile detention place and we didn't see him much after that but uh, he was about eight years older than me he lived on the property his uh, father was the one who started the business with my grandfather he hung out with a rough crowd drugs you know did a lot of bad things And I remember, even now, I had to take the stand and point him out. And it was just very uncomfortable. I couldn't be up there with my parents. I had to do it all on my own. And we didn't talk about it. You know, he was charged, not allowed near a family again, and nobody talked about it. His sister, Kathy, was an alcoholic, very promiscuous, uh, failed marriage. You know, she got kicked off the property after our grandparents died and her dad died. It was her child at home, and she's still very resentful about it now. Uh, another dysfunctional thing that comes up, my parents let me date a 17-year-old when I was 14. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would let my kids do that. You know, He was a drinker. He was very aggressive sexually. They didn't know that. He was controlling and demanding, and he got violent. His family came up to our lodge for years, so, so we know these people. They're friends. They're good people, but... Uh, I didn't see him all often. and he was in the Navy, uh, but he was two different people. He was one in front of everybody else and he was one when he was alone with me. And I, I didn't understand what it was. I mean, I'd never even been kissed before and he would force himself on me and he would hit me and he would make me say I loved him and I would just kind of try and hide away from him. But when it all came out, uh, the police came and interviewed my siblings, my sisters to make sure they hadn't been touched, which had happened with my cousin as well. It was just very uncomfortable. And again, wasn't talked about. My dad wouldn't even look at me because he, I think he felt so much shame on himself. I let this happen. How could I let this happen to my daughter? And I feel bad. I felt bad for him. And I still even feel bad for him, even though it wasn't my fault, but I hurt because he hurts, you know, and that hurt him. I know as a parent now, I would never, I, it would be hard to forgive myself, If something like that happened to my children, but in a way, I'm kind of glad because I'm more alert and aware and I can teach my children. But again, you know, no one talked about it. So in high school, I became very depressed and suicidal. Uh, My mom didn't really help in that matter because she, she treated me like she, she could cure me from my depression. She tried to kick me out because she didn't want to deal with me, but dad wouldn't let her. She treated me like I was invisible for a period. She wouldn't set my place at the table or serve me food. She wouldn't do my laundry. So it was like I wasn't part of the family. And I don't, I still don't understand to this day how she thought that would help me. But uh, that's what she did. And it hurt a lot, it hurt a lot. And when I did attempt suicide, my parents took me to the hospital and uh, family counseling was suggested. And we did eventually sought to, uh, do that, but it, I don't think it lasted very long. I don't remember it lasting very long. Uh, end of high school, my mom had an affair, and the marriage started to crumble. She left my dad, and he suffered greatly. And uh, it was very traumatic for me to watch my dad crumble like that and to suffer that loss. I mean, he had a meltdown. I mean, I'm sure he had many meltdowns, but I experienced one of them, and it was not something I think I was supposed to be part of, you know, as his child. He's made amends for that since because he was a little embarrassed and he shouldn't have done that in front of me, but I understand. I understand now as an adult, you know. I had a boyfriend in high school that pressured sex, but I, you know, I, I didn't give in. And later in high school, he had a girlfriend. And then there was an incident where he pre- pushed himself on me at a party and his girlfriend was there as well. And fight or flight, I just froze, you know, and that's what happened. I would freeze when men would push themselves on me because I didn't know what else to do, that fear, that fear of, of of me being bad and I know, or me doing something that caused it. And I know it's not true now, but back then I was so young and had so many things happen that no one taught me. Because we didn't talk about it. Once it was done, that's it. No talking about it. It happened. Let's move on. But those bumps under the rug, you shove it under the rug. The dirt piles up, you know. And someone's got to clean that up, or someone's got to sort through it, or get rid of the dirt. So um, I moved out. My mom left. My dad and moved in with the guy she was having an affair with. And I moved out at nineteen. I wanted to stay and take care of my dad and my my sisters and my brother. And My dad said no. He goes, "It's not your job." It's not your job to stay here and to take care of these problems that have happened between me and your mother. You have to go and and live your own life. So I moved out. I got a job and my mom and I didn't speak for three years. I think it was, yeah, for about three years, you know, I went to counseling. I was on medication for depression. Um, I tried so many different things. Um, eventually my mom and I reconnected, but it was very, uh, it was just very different. We didn't, we didn't talk about the past. We just tried to build a relationship moving forward. I was engaged for four years to an alcoholic, um, whose stepdad made sexual advances on me. And I just, I kept thinking, what is wrong with me that these men keep doing this? And, and then I allowed it too. you know, I mean, when that happened, when my fiance, my ex fiance's dad, I I had to bring it up. I brought it up to the whole family, and then everything crumbled. You know, we ended up breaking up, which was really, I had a lot of guilt and shame, and I had that, still that fear of authority figures. You know, that was the late nineties, and we were engaged for four years. It's a long time, and all the money went to the booze instead of bills. And I remember our power getting cut off and all our food going bad and just sitting there and crying. And why am I, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I staying here? Once his dad, his stepdad uh, made advances towards me, it just caused so much family friction. And at that point I'm like, I I don't want to live this life. I don't, you know, I don't want to wonder if my bills are going to get paid. I'm working my butt off and I give him money to pay the bills and he just goes to the bar and drinks. And I just, so I broke it off with him. Um, later on, my best friend, her husband, <laughs> made sexual advances towards me. And it's funny to say this out loud because uh, typing it up, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I remember going through this. And yeah, I... but saying it out loud, I feel almost like this is silly in a way. Why did I allow this to keep happening? It's this bad pattern, right? But it's all. It's part of me, it's part of who I am, it's how I'm growing, it's how I got into recovery, it's how I'm being stronger and learning how to love myself. Because I back then I just I guess I really didn't love myself enough. So my friend's husband would make advances towards me and so I felt guilt and shame. I couldn't stand up for myself. So all these traits, all these, you know, laundry list traits, they all cycle in through all these these happenings. You know, I worked with her at a bakery. We had so much fun together. We go shopping, and her kids. I would we'd plan their birthday parties together. I was like part of the family. I was at her house all the time. You know, I was at their wedding, and I babysat their kids. And you know, we did lots of family things together. I was kind of like the sister, you know. And but he he would climb into bed with me while I was sleeping over, and his wife was up in their room. You know, and he and I. Yeah, I mean, I can't even put it into words. But I would tell him no, and I would tell him, like, get the heck out of this bed because, you know, if you don't, I'm going to have to go upstairs and tell her. And I never told her, and I still, I don't know if I feel guilt. I just feel it's on my amends list. I don't think I'll make direct amends because it's been so long, but I will make some kind of amends because I never told anyone till I started doing my fifth step work. And I just stopped hanging out with them. And then when I moved away, it was just easier. I didn't have to worry about being over there or saying no to invites because I moved away. Um, then I met my husband. I met. I moved out west with my sister in 06. We moved from Ontario to um, Alberta. And we just wanted to go on an adventure so like hey why not i'm done school i hate my job or she's done school i hate my job let's just pack up the car and go so we did we packed up the car we drove across the country and i met my husband out there he's from texas and it was love at first sight i mean that's how i felt anyway we got mom he was in calgary working on a visa and when his visa ran out he said i'm going back to the states do you want to come i said sure and we moved to Alabama. We got married in '09, And he was a binge drinker. I mean, we were partiers when we met, you know. We had a good time. We were single and no kids. And we just would go out and do the town and meet people. And I didn't see red flags. I didn't know what a red flag was. But he was a workaholic, which he always was and always, you know, throughout our marriage. I didn't know how insecure he was. Um, I mean there's a lot of great things about him, you know, but he, he was definitely, he felt like he was better than people and his job was his identity, you know, being this big career person, you know, I mean, I grew up with chaotic in my life, so I accepted it as part of normal marriage. This I've never been married before. I don't know. So yeah, I just went with the flow and nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Trust me. I'm definitely not perfect. So I accepted his flaws and he accepted mine and we had three beautiful children, but uh, as he traveled with work, his alcohol intake increased. Um, he would travel during the week and come home on the weekends and be so drunk and just, he got nasty, you know, um, weekends became less pleasant as the drinking and the verbal abuse increased, you know, and eventually some physical abuse came became present. I was in survival mode. We we're married 12 years. You know, he lost a 20 year career. He had a six figure salary, which he boasted about all the time. He got a bunch of DUIs. He went to jail. He's on probation now. His father-in-law is an alcoholic, but he's in denial. His father-in-law ha- or his fa- my father-in-law, his father has like seven brothers and they're all in AA. So it runs in the family or there's something there that, you know, but a lot of them are in denial his dad's very aggressive and demanding he knows everything he likes to just throw money at people yes here you go this is the, the you know this is how you'll solve everything he likes to live a lush lifestyle and have parties and but I left my husband two years ago with my our three children because it it became dangerous um, We had a nice big house in Georgia where he got stationed and he just he, he was caught up alcohol overtook him and he couldn't stop. He was the kind of person that I can do it on my own. I can can fix everything, which is what he did for work. He would be sent somewhere and he would fix the place, get all the problems, get the right people working. So he thought I can fix everything at home too, but it just got out of control. And he just became a danger to himself and everyone around him. And when I had to carry a baseball bat around with me, I thought, this is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life, and my kids do not deserve this either, and I had to get over the guilt of not leaving earlier, but I left. I packed my three kids into our little Nissan and drove, because we'd gone to Texas to try and be close to his family for more support. He was going to go to rehab, but that didn't happen, so... Yeah, I left and I came back to Alabama, which is where my kids were born and where I had friends already. And I stayed in my friend's basement for six months and I looked for a job. I got an apartment. So now I've been back to work. I was a stay-at-home mom for seven years. So I'm, I've been back to work. It'll be two years next month. And I support all four of us on my own. And I'm doing it. So, I mean, it's, it's not easy. and Most days it's not fun. I mean, every day is a struggle, but we're safe. You know, we're safer than we were, and uh, I, I I'm, we're not living in fear. They have routine. They know what to expect, you know, and, and we deserved better. So I needed the space also and safety to heal. I couldn't heal myself. I was going to. I was trying to recover as well. So um, I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting in October of 2017. I knew I was home. I just, I, I, I just knew it. I knew this was the place I was supposed to be. My life had become completely unmanageable. And I had exhausted every effort I knew to save my life. Every effort. You know, with three young children, and my husband was spiraling out of control at that time, it, it was my last resort. My friend suggested it. She said, hey, come to an al meet with me. She doesn't even go. Like She went to two, and that was it. But I just I knew I didn't want to live my life like that anymore. you know i had difficult having fun I, I i didn't know what was normal anymore i judged myself without mercy i overreacted to everything i felt alone i couldn't make decisions I mean, i'm still indecisive but that's just me but what a relief what a relief to feel so welcome and so understood and not judged and safe it was such a safe space and these were strangers total strangers i'd never met anybody in this room I don't know any of you. I might know a couple, but it was like a big light bulb went off, you know. And I could could and I should focus on me. I learned that. Not anyone else. I didn't have to focus on my husband's drinking anymore. I didn't have to focus on my mother's behaviors and how they affected me. I could learn from them. But recovery gave me permission to take care of myself. And I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know. I thought I had to take care of everybody else. And I've always been, even to, you know, some days I call myself a mom slave robot and I'm bottom of the totem pole. But that's just my day to day, my daily responsibilities as a parent. But if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of my children properly. But I had a lot to learn, you know, all the steps were on the wall and there's all this literature and it was very overwhelming. I was so eager to know everything. I had to be patient. I had to take baby steps. In-person meetings were very hard to go to with the kids, though. So I jumped on the phone bridge. And I was I went to every meeting I could possibly go to all day long, and online as well. As I was a stay-at-home mom, I could listen and, and do the laundry and feed the kids and do what I needed to do, and I was just always listening. And I was always drawn to ACA, but my immediate need was Al-Anon because I wanted to get help with dealing with my husband Dealing with living in the chaos of, you know, that manifested from the survival behaviors I developed from living with that for so long. I wanted to be better for myself and for my children. And at that time, I wanted to try and fix my marriage. I mean, not fix it, but just make it better. I wanted to break the patterns of my family dysfunction. And that's why ACA kept trickling in. Cause I knew that there was deep rooted things that I needed to deal with and accept and learn. I mean, all these emotions I had, I didn't even know what they were called. I didn't know how to name those emotions. So, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I had a lot of guilt for staying as long as I did and a lot of guilt for not asking for help earlier. You know, I never knew what codependence was until recovery. I didn't know what being a victim was or playing a victim and all these behaviors I had created that were not healthy for anyone around me, I didn't realize that I was sick too. You know. As an ACA parent, I worry excessively. You know, I do I did everything for my kids. And that was not teaching them by doing it all. I, you know, I'm changing it now. I really am. And I'm allowing them to learn for themselves and allowing them to do for themselves. That people pleasing is still very hard to break. I mean, I'll be I'm gonna be forty seven in a couple weeks, so it's very hard to unlearn that many years of doing that. So, uh, and I'm learning to quiet my critical parent. I'm learning to lessen my self doubt. You know, I've suffered with self doubt all my life, and as a mother, ooh, it's relentless. It's relentless. But we're not perfect, and we can't do everything perfectly. And that's such a good, comforting thing to know and to realize. You know, I'm learning to look at my positive qualities as a parent and a person in recovery. You know, with reparenting, my mom passed away 18 years ago. I'm her age right now. And I wish that I could have shared recovery with her, you know, as well as my children. But, you know, I'm working through my recovery, and I'm, I'm learning to forgive her and to make amends with her even without her here. I love that there's so many different ways that we can do that as well. And in ACA, I'm learning about my traits, my impulsive behaviors, my isolation, my inconsistency, you know, Um I had a little bit of substance abuse myself just to numb, addiction, to numb out the chaos, you know. Um, Avoidance of conflict, I've learned, you know, I avoid conflict with strong personalities, with authority, even with friends. And that's that abandonment from as a kid. And I mean, I call ACA my light bulb program because all these light bulbs come off. Oh, that's why I act this way, because when I was a kid, I had this done to me. And, you know, because I don't understand, why am I doing this? Why am I, I don't want to be this type of person, but these light bulbs go off as I'm working the steps and as I'm talking with fellow members and and the people-pleasing. I, mean, I no longer seek people's approval because I, I, I can love myself. I don't need someone else to love me, to be a lovable person. I'm finding my own self-identity. Ident- you know, I don't have to meet other people's needs. I can meet my own first. That's what's most important. And... I don't crave acceptance anymore. It's it's very relieving. It's very it's beautiful. I'm working on my in, intimacy issues. That's you know my unhealthy parent uh, patterns, my loss of control, my inability to express emotions and needs. And uh, recovery has really taught me how to get better in that. So I practice ACA with all the gifts of the program. Service. When I came into recovery, jumping into service was the easiest thing for me to do you know, I could learn, I could meet other people, I could help. I mean, I was chairing five meetings a week at one point. I can't believe I was doing that. Like even just doing two studies a week is overwhelming, but I was also not working full time and supporting three kids on my own. So, but I also had a chaos, chaos at home as well. So, but I, I, I moderate a couple of groups. Um, I post and I greet newcomers and Fellowship is also another gift of recovery that I hold close to my heart. I'm an extrovert. I love meeting new people. Um, ESH is so valuable. It really is. And reasoning things out with others who are there just to listen or share their experience, strength, and hope. It's so rewarding, so comforting. I mean, I I have a group of al honors that we talk every day, and I, I always tell them, I'm thankful you're in my back pocket. You know, you're like my little back pocket friends, and when I need you, you're right there. And It's very comforting. And another gift I find is the literature. The promises. When I read the promises in the laundry list, that's, that's what hooked me to ACA. Those promises are wonderful, and I really should read them every day. I should. <laughs> I want to. Reading and journaling, so many wonderful resources and meetings. There's so many countless meetings and for several different recovery programs, which I'm so thankful for. I like to moderate. I like to join. I like to listen. and I like to share. So as I said, I call ACA my light bulb program. It's me focused, you know, and if that's not selfish, it's necessary. Self-care, self-focus, self-love, and self-respect. Those are things I had no idea what they were. I didn't know they existed. So I'm in two weekly yellow workbook step studies, and I join workshops when I can, as well as topic and daily reader meetings, as my time allows. It's not easy being a lone parent of three young children who, you know, are very demanding. (laughs) But I am a trusted servant in many groups, and I love to reach out, and I also sponsor. And I keep coming back because I know I'm worth it. I want to be a better person every day. I want to love myself more every day. And as I've said before, I want to break those patterns of the past with my children. You know, re- recovery is part of my life. It always will be. Things can still be a roller coaster, but I'm able to handle the obstacles much better. And more, It just, I don't feel like I'm sinking anymore. I'm not in a sinking ship. You know, I've, found, I've plugged my holes and I'm, I'm moving forward. You know, I'm not going backwards. And I make those obstacles stepping stones in my journey. Um, I'm not sure what time I'm at, but I did want to read today's the topic. I guess we'll pick the topic. You're good. You're good. Right. I wanted to read today's um, meditation from the reader, uh, Strengthening My Recovery, because I read it this morning and the emotional sobriety is the topic. So I think it's a great topic and it was a really good read today. So I'm going to read that. August 19th, Emotional Sobriety. With emotional sobriety, reparenting ourselves becomes a reality in our lives. Big Red Book, page 265. Our program calls us to recognize the truth within us. A beginning truth is that our families, in their unfinished spiritual states, corrupted our thinking. As young children, we could relate to no one other than our families to see how the world was around us. This often involved a series of dysfunctional beliefs, such as, I can make it on my own, I'm too proud to accept help from anyone, or we are so much better than they are. This led us to a false sense of independence, or even superiority, that effectively cuts us off from many forms of useful information that could have helped us. As adults, we lived with this corrupted thinking, in a state of confusion and denial, unable to admit that we needed help, and unable to trust anyone. When we find recovery in ACA, we discover that we can reparent ourselves. We learn to see the truth about our parents in a non-judgmental way, which helps us first accept whatever good things they pass to us. Then, without anger or resentment, we firmly reject their dysfunctional ways of thinking. We are now free to chart our own course of behavioral, spiritual, and emotional sobriety. On this day, I will focus on using all I've learned in ACA to help me reparent myself. I choose spiritual and emotional sobriety. I'm so thankful to be here, and I'm so thankful for all of you listening, and um, I have so much love right now for you and for this program, so thank you so much, everyone.